We're in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. We'll go through uh, verse 39. So 21 through 39. Sometimes we just find Jesus in the least expected places, huh? And, you know, there's always going to be a church to worship God. And this early on in the gospel, one might tend to think that there, there weren't many believers among the Jewish people because this is the first century. And so this is Jesus just coming on the scene. How can there be any, like... Christians, right? And so we, we find, often find that even later on after this first century that, that Jesus is in conflict with Jewish leaders. So you're wondering how in the world is this Christianity thing ever going to take off? How is this ever going to get traction? But in Luke chapters 1 and 2, it's clear that there's this remnant of true believers here. That there's this waiting church in Israel, and even though they wouldn't call, necessarily call themselves Christians yet, that there's this church that is waiting for the Christ, the Messiah. And in chapter 1, verse 7, there was Zechariah and Elizabeth, then there was Joseph and Mary, and then there was Simeon, and then there was Anna. And then so here we have this line of true remnants of true believers waiting, awaiting church who is faithfully waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Christ. And you'll notice that Luke doesn't draw attention to the believers in of themselves, but of their witness. The attention isn't drawn to those people, it's drawn to the witness of Jesus. Just like any true believer or any true church, where our attention is on the witness of Jesus, as a witness of Jesus, not on ourselves, not on our church, and they are proclaiming Jesus just as they ought to be just as we ought to be preoccupied with our Savior, our Jesus, our Messiah, focused on Jesus, not ourselves, not our church, and what we do individually, not what we do collectively as a church, and and raising the banner of regeneration, or raising the banner of ourselves, but it's Jesus. So what do these remnants of true believers, Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Anna, what are they going to tell us in our text today about our Lord and Savior? Well, First, they're going to share with us the humiliation of Jesus. Verses 21 through 24. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. A male baby in Israel was circumcised on the eighth day. And then there was this purification process for the birthing mother. When a woman gave birth to a male child, she was strictly segregated from the community. She was considered ceremonially unclean for seven days. Then there were 33 more days that she was technically unclean and she couldn't go into the sanctuary to worship. She couldn't take part in religious activities or even visit. And then at the end of those 33 days, according to Leviticus chapter 12, she was to bring a sacrifice. And the sacrifice was for her purification. Leviticus 12, if you have a pew Bible right in front of you, uh, it's one of the first books in the Bible there. Just keep turning there. And... I'll just read that to you, Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. 
Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for, who, for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So they were doing all of this according to the law. The law, the law of the Lord, the law of Moses, these were all referred to five times in our text this morning. And Joseph and Mary weren't just doing something that just came up with, oh, this is a pretty good idea if we would just sacrifice and we go to the temple. They didn't just come up with this stuff. They were living according to God's law for Israel. And Luke shows us this in verses 22, 23, 24, 27, and 39, that it's in accordance to God's law. And so Jesus was circumcised on that eighth day. Mary was purified according to the sacrifice. And this is just part of the humiliation of Jesus. And you're asking, how is that humiliating? Well, he was born a Jew. And at this time, this is a pretty humiliating thing. Nothing against the Jews. But they just weren't looked upon very favorably at that time. And actually, it's not just back then. If you look at the past 2,500 years of history you'd be hard-pressed to find any race of people who have been as persecuted, as despised, as hated as the Jew. And ever since the Babylonian captivity in 587 B.C., you can go read about it, it's just been hell for them on earth. And the most famous of the Jewish persecutions is the Holocaust, but that's just one horrific instance. If you go and read First and Second Maccabees, for instance, in the Apocrypha, if you read that, it will give you some insight into 168 B.C. when the Syrians try to just wipe out their faith, try to wipe out the Jews from existence. And you read some history about how some professing Christians, and I don't know if they really had a relationship with Jesus because I don't think they would have done this, but how some professing Christians forced conversions of the Jews to Christianity, and that's, that's just a shameful thing. And you can read about how the Jews have been treated in Poland or in Russia or Nazi Germany. And even if some get out of that Nazi Germany regime, the British prevented them from immigrating to Palestine to find refuge during World War II. And there were just these few places that they could go in the world, one of them being Shanghai, China. Just bizarre things you just learn about studying this stuff, right? And then you take a look at modern-day Israel. And and I'm not using this as a platform to say, like, pro-Israel, everything that they do is right, all their policies are right. I am not saying that, because I simply don't believe that they are, not all of them at least. But what I'm trying to portray is just an understanding, an understanding of their mentality that, that what they have to go through in that in their little piece of real estate, all the other nations around them want that piece of real estate. And not just want that real estate, they want them out. And not just want them out, they want them dead. So it's just to promote an understanding and, 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 and to kind of get a better 
understanding of what they're going through to try to put yourself in their place. And so we have this snapshot of what being a Jew is like for the past 2,500 years. And so I hope it gives you a little bit more understanding. And I'm not saying that they're right or wrong, right? I'm not saying that. I'm just promoting understanding for their situation, knowing that there needs to be understanding also for Palestinians or anyone else that is on the other side. And so did you know that a lot of those Palestinians are actually our Christian brothers and sisters? I don't think the media portrays that, right? They, they just kind of say like, oh, you bad Jews, you're picking on Muslims. And those, they're actually a lot of Christian Palestinians. I've met a lot of them. face And it just surprised me. And by going there, I actually learned a lot more about the situation that it's not so simple. That it's not as easy as we, we think, oh, just, just separate their places and live in peace. If it was that simple, don't you think it would have been done? It's not that simple. There, but, but there are a good amount of Christians who are being displaced by Israel. They're Christians. They're your brothers and sisters. And I don't think we would fully understand that or, or fully understand a Palestinian's place until we put ourselves in that place where we relate to them that they are brothers. You're displacing our brothers and sisters from a land that they've lived in for a long time, generations. So, so it's to promote understanding of the situation in the Middle East. I'm not trying to draw sides or saying one's right, one's wrong. It's, it's, I'm just trying to say it's not as simple. And try to understand just from the perspective of this study of Jesus as a Jew born on earth, the perspective of being born a Jew and the history that they've experienced for the past 2,500 years. So here we have this people group that is despised, that is hated for thousands of years. And not only did he become a Jew, he became a poor Jew. A poor Jew. How do we know that? You look at verse 24. The sacrifice, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, that was reserved for the poor, right? According to Leviticus chapter 12. The proper offering for purification after childbirth was a lamb that was a year old that was offered for the burnt offering. And then the birdie was offered for a sin offering. But here is this provision for the poor that if you couldn't afford a lamb, then you could offer a birdie, and then you can offer a birdie. So two birdies. And so we don't know exactly how poor Mary and Joseph were. We just know that they were poor enough that they couldn't afford a lamb. And that they weren't people of means. So here we have the Son of God whom we'd expect to have to, to come as this triumphant king. But he's born a poor Jew and under the law when when Jews are are despised and they're hated and they're persecuted. And and so we'd be hard-pressed to find a scenario for a Savior to be born lower than this. So you see the Savior that we have. How God mapped out this plan so, so we would be able to associate with the lowest of lows because He was at the lowest of lows And through God's plan and the humiliation of Jesus, the Son of God, we get an understanding that no matter where we are, that God relates, that He understands because He has this lowest of lows stature, that He can understand wherever you are. And God, to place His only Son, Jesus, under the law, under the law of Moses, and to obey it completely when all of us here have broken it at some point in our life and will repeatedly break it. Yet he submits himself to it fully. And so Jesus kept the law of the Lord completely. He submitted himself to it fully, faithfully, righteously in order to work out our redemption. 
And so you see the cost that he paid, starting from the lowliest of lows, living through the lowliest of lows, and redeeming us from that point. And he emptied himself completely, taking the form of a poor Jewish baby. And so I have a question for us. Do we have gratitude for him for that? Do we have a a gratitude for him? I I hope there's this better understanding of the cost that Jesus paid, the humiliation that he endured. And in this next section of Scripture, we're going to see the sufficiency in Jesus by waiting. Waiting as an individual believer in Jesus and waiting as a church. Verses 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon was given this special revelation, and the Lord told him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. And so, for some reason, he was prompted to go into the temple this day at this time, when Mary and Joseph were also bringing Jesus. And when Simeon took baby Jesus in his arms, in verse 28, he said in verse 29 and 30, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, where did Simeon get this idea of salvation? It's from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, where it says, My salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And the Lord God was saying to the Messiah that he would not only save Israel, but he would also save the Gentiles and and the end of the earth. And Jesus would bring redemption to Israel and to the Gentiles as well. So not only Israel, but also to the Gentiles, also to the pagans, but also to Simeon individually also. Right, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Now the word depart in verse 29 is talking about death. And Simeon is saying, now that I've seen him, I can die. So he'll, oh. no, he didn't do that. He would have dropped a baby Jesus and he would have just floated like, hey, man. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He's fully human. He was fully human. Simeon didn't see the salvation that Jesus would bring the Jews and Gentiles, right? He, he died. So he didn't see how Jesus die on the cross and redeem people from their sin. He, he didn't see that. But he saw God's salvation because he held it in his arms. He held Jesus in his arms. Simeon is saying, I am holding salvation in my arms. This baby I'm holding in my arms is salvation. So th- things haven't happened yet. Things haven't been carried out. Right? Jesus didn't die. He didn't raise from the dead yet. But by holding Jesus in his arms, Simeon saw salvation. And all of God's saving work was wrapped in that bundle of joy. All of it. And it's the sufficiency of Jesus to meet every need. For, for Simeon, he seemed to be able to, to die without fear. That, that He goes, oh, now I can die. And some, some guys, if they were like, oh, if I could just touch that girl, hold her hand, I could just die. This is baby Jesus. Like, he could literally die now. 
Right? Salvation. And Simeon was able to face death. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your words. For my eyes have seen your salvation. There's just no fear at all of death. That assurance isn't something that the pagan world knew very much about. Right? They didn't have the assurance in the face of death. Gaius Valerius Catellus, who was a pagan poet during Julius Caesar's reign, wrote this. Suns are able to rise and set, but once our brief light sets, an endless night must be slept by us. And we often hear this as well when we're talking to people. Oh, if you don't believe in an afterlife, if you don't believe, what happens? Oh, you're just dead. That's it. You're, just, you're cut. That's it. And that's, that's the pagan gospel. And that's what you get. That's, that's their gospel. But Simeon shows us a gospel where when death is just around the corner that, that we don't have to fear it, that it's actually not the end because our Savior is sufficient. Nate, our youth worker, our drummer, I'm going to use him as an example. He has this mentor that he meets with regularly in Fremont, and so he drives down there and he meets with this guy. But his mentor has a mentor. Um, Nate, Nate's mentors are advanced in years already. And, and so this mentor's mentor is in his 90s. He's in his 90s, and he's been meeting with this guy for decades. So um, the mentor of his mentor, who's in his, we'll just call him his grand mentor so that we don't have to say mentor. So his grand mentor um, has been with this guy for decades, showing him how to live like Christ. And so he continues to meet with him, and now he's, kind of turning it, and, he's, and, he, and he held the guy, and he said, I showed you how to live as Christ. Now I'm going to show you how to die like Christ. And, and it's kind of morbid. You know, when Nate was sharing with me, me this thing, I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, he's going to show you how to die? Like, but Nate's grand mentor is like another Simeon, right? Because he has our Savior that he can face this thing that we call death, without any fear, that he, he's lived his life, but now he's in this next phase of life where he's preparing to die well also. And so, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, Paul writes, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Do we have that kind of mentality? Do we have that kind of comfort and that peace and that confidence? Do we have that sufficient Savior in our mind and Jesus in our life so that we can face, fear, face death without any fear, without any reservation, that, that we're, we're totally okay. And so we have the humiliation of Jesus, we have the sufficiency of Jesus, and now we, we're going to get to the offense of Jesus here in verses 33 through 35. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon is saying that when Jesus comes onto the scene in, in his ministry, he's going to divide, he's going to offend, he's going to expose and he's going to make some fall. He's going to make some rise. Or the other way around. And, and to some people he will bring judgment. And to others he's going to save. And you see Jesus is this divider. He's this 
person who will expose, he's, he's going to offend. And what Simeon does here is he, he casts the shadow of the cross really early on in Luke's gospel here. And he says, a, a sword will pierce through your own soul. So people are going to be exposed by Jesus. And there is no neutrality in Jesus. There is no sideline with Jesus. You, you choose a side. You choose to be with Him, and if you don't, then you choose the other side. There is no neutrality with Him. He will expose every thought. He will expose everything within our hearts. He will expose every attitude towards Him. All of it will be flushed out. Everything will be flushed out out of every person to reveal everything about them. Every thought that you have. Every, every kind of attitude that you have. And the response to Jesus is also going to be exposed. That will be exposed. And there's no escape in making a decision about Jesus. He's going to bring conflict. He's, he's going to call. Right? And this is what Jesus told His disciples in Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. There will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. That one's not that difficult. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That, that one's a foregone conclusion. So, so kidding. Some, sometimes you guys have great relationships there. So... I have a great one with my father-in-law, which is why I think that that one's not mentioned there. I was like, yeah. <laughs> what did Jesus mean here? See, when someone comes to Jesus, when, when, when that person becomes his disciple, you're going to find opposition. Right? When, when allegiance is given to Jesus, conflict is just going to happen. And our faith in Jesus, it it offends people. If you don't think so, just read something in the media. Like Christians become like the cuss word of like the 20th century or something. And some of us know this firsthand. Some of us have lost the support of loved ones, like family and friends, even if they are Christians. When I went into the ministry, and my, my father is a Christian, so he was cool with it. My mom is not. And so my, my dad was like, as long as you are called, you do it. If you're not, you shouldn't do it. I was like, bless you, Father. Thank you. I, 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 I thank you for your wisdom. My mom was like, you're out of your mind. Why would you leave such a great job? You went through all that schooling, and you got this great job, and you got all this stuff. Why are you going to leave? Conflict. Division. There's conflict in the gospel. Right, and I, and I was just at a conference this past week, and, and while I was there, I was talking to this pastor who had this elder on his board, and he had to resign because of his wife. His wife was not a disciple of Jesus, and she forced him to make a choice. Either you choose to continue being an elder, or I'm leaving. And so, conflict. Conflict, and praise God that he did the right thing, and he went to his wife and tried to work things out. That's what he should do. But the gospel divides. And Jesus is going to expose all of our real attitudes, all of our thoughts, 
everything that's in our heart. And there are some who may find Jesus actually non-offensive, so they think. But that's only until Jesus comes against something in your life. Right? Then it's like, hey, you offended me, right? When he comes into your ungodly life and convicts you of something, and this is when the offense happens. And this goes for people who profess Jesus as their Savior. That Jesus even offends them because people who believe in Jesus, they believe in him when it's convenient. When it fits their life, when things are okay with them. But once you touch something that, oh, I'm sensitive about that, don't do... And you mean, Jesus, you don't line up with me? Then I'm not okay. I'm mad. Right? And, and So is Jesus supposed to make us comfortable in our sin? Is he supposed to make us happy and say, oh, you're right, we, we should just all get along. I, I know I'm God, but okay. What, what about forsaking your sin? Leaving your sins. Leaving those things that cause a division between you and a holy God. When we are called to Jesus, when He flushes out those sinful attitudes and thoughts and, those, and our hearts, and, we tend to get offended. It tends to hurt. And, and we get angry and we get hostile towards Him. And we get hostile towards those who are standing for Him and, and telling us these things. And, and that's when that true lack of submission comes out. When that true lack of obedience comes out. See, Jesus is offensive. And some of us have, have had our share of being offended by Jesus. And, and we all have these decisions to make. And Jesus will uncover our true selves and our hidden selves. At the same time, Jesus is a uniter. Who went to the women at the well? Who told Zacchaeus to come down from the tree and to eat with him? You see, we have this holy God that, that sin divides, but he reaches out. And it's not that, oh, I'm here and everybody get out of my way. Jesus is trying to bring you in, but he can't be with sin. He, he, he's sinless. He's holy. But he is calling those people out. He, he dines with sinners, right? He, he cho- Who did he choose as a disciple? He chose a tax collector. Right? So, it, so it's not like, oh, I'm holy and oof, poo-poo. Right? No, it's like he gathers. But when you make that decision, there is going to be conflict because you're in association with holiness. It's, it, it's going to cause division. But he reaches out to you. He's a uniter. At the same time. Verses 36 through 39. There was a prophetess, Anna, the the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. We're introduced to a woman of Jesus here, Anna. She's quite an incredible woman in in a string of incredible women in the book of Luke. First we were introduced to Elizabeth, and then we had Mary, and now we're introduced to Anna. And Anna, like Elizabeth, was, was well advanced in years. We're told in verses 36 and 37 that she lived with her husband seven years and that she was a widow until she was 84. 
So apparently she was married for seven years before her husband died. She never remarried, and she was a widow until 84. And what we have here is this senior citizen who is a testimony to Jesus. Anna, who knows firsthand as a widow what isolation means, what loneliness means. All those things, those, those things that when what widows were looked, upon, were looked down upon back then, she knows, knew firsthand what that meant. And here we have Anna who is among the remnant of this waiting church. A true and faithful believer who is waiting for the Messiah. And she's just this beautiful picture of a person who is faithfully waiting for Jesus. And she's in good company with people like Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon. And like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon, she was up there in years. So let's take a look at the type of witness witnesses Jesus has. See, Jesus is not ashamed of those who would, who would be looked down upon to give testimony of him, right? Joseph, a carpenter. Mary, a pregnant teenage gal who, whose marriage wasn't consummated, but she was pregnant. An, an elderly couple who had to endure all these decades of childlessness and having people wonder, like, is there sin in their life? Are they doing something? Isn't he a priest, though? What's going on in there? And, and Simeon, who's about to face death, Right? This guy, he's older than a lot of things, and he's holding Jesus, and he's probably when he sets him aside, he's going to die. And, and this widow, for many, many decades, with all those things that she had to endure throughout her entire life, that no matter what your set of circumstances or how life looks to the world, how your life looks to the world, how low it looks, Jesus delights in you. Jesus delights in you. He, 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 he loves you. He, he likes the way that you are. He delights in people like you. I mean, there were the, you look at the picture of all these first people that he used. Are, are any of them like a king or a nobleman or whatever? You, you notice that many of the people mentioned here are elderly folks who would be collecting SSI. Right? Right? What does that tell us? What does that tell? If you are more advanced and if you are more mature, your life isn't over, your journey isn't over. Even when you're well advanced in years, life isn't over. Your journey is not done. Being a disciple of Jesus is lifelong. And there's no magic age of effectiveness or faithfulness. I think the time of effectiveness and faithfulness is now. It's in the present. And if you are further along in age, ministry isn't over for you. Right? You're not done. You can be a faithful remnant of Jesus now. Just like all these examples here. Psalms chapter 71, verses 17 and 18. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Your power to all those to come. And also, if you're younger... If you're younger, you don't have to wait to be more mature, to be faithful and effective in your ministry. You can be faithful, obedient, and be a remnant of the church now. 
First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, and, and I think we can learn from this. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So Jesus is a sufficient Savior regardless of age, regardless of your past, regardless of your circumstances. Jesus doesn't cast you aside or forsake you as the world does because you lack something. You lack something on your resume. You lack experience. You lack education. You are too old. You're too young. You're too this. You're too that. He doesn't do that. When you're insufficient, He is sufficient. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And the disciples of Jesus, they're they're very diverse. And He uses a variety of people to serve within His kingdom. And God delights in using those whom others discount, like 84-year-old widows. He delights in that. And if there's anything that tells you that you can't be part of a, a, a God's work because you're this to this or you're to that or whatever, that is a lie. That's a lie. You can be used no matter where you're at, no matter what station in life you're in right now, you can be used by the Lord. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in using you for His kingdom. So how how did Anna become this type of person who is just full of this hopefulness here? It's in verse 37. Worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. See, she was spiritually disciplined in her life with God. She, She was focused on God. She was focused on worshiping God. So that when she saw baby Jesus, she recognized him. Instantly, like, there he is. She was worshiping all those years, fasting and prayers, day and night, that when she saw God, she could recognize him. And I think that's part of our problem is that we focus on other things and then when something happens to pass by that is of the Holy Spirit, that is of God, we miss it. And it just passes us by. Because we weren't, in, we weren't worshiping with, with fasting and prayer night and day. We didn't have that focus. We didn't have that mentality that even when it crosses right before us, we don't even recognize it. Because God is doing something. God is doing something in our church. God is doing something in Oakland, in the Bay Area, all over the world. We just need to recognize what He's doing and jump on. He's already doing something. But where are we in our focus? Where are we in our attitude? Where are we in our hearts? Are, are we worshiping with fasting and in prayer night and day? Are we just kind of whatever? Life is whatever. What does your schedule look like? What does your calendar look like? Are you making appointments with God? This is my time with the Lord. I find that if I don't do that, he gets the leftovers. He gets the leftovers. Whether it's I'm, I'm heading to bed or whatever. or you know, He just gets the leftover stuff. What's our priority? Are, are we making an appointment with the Lord? First thing. like Our best times. Are we with God? Are we, are we worshiping Him at those times? Are we fasting? Are we, are we in prayer day and night? So that when something comes along... There he is. Let's follow him. Let's go. And we recognize Jesus. 
Our focus is to be on Jesus, to be preoccupied with Jesus day and night. And we have to have our vision fixed upon Him. And not get distracted by other things. And so our vision, our focus needs to be on Jesus and worshiping Him. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask for forgiveness for not being fixated on You. That we tend to be preoccupied with other things, with, with things that may even be on the uh, pedestal of being a false idol. So we ask, Lord, that You would reveal those things to us. We know, Lord, that when You come into our life, that You are a divider, that You offend, that You expose, and, and that we have all these things. And we just ask, Lord, I pray for the people here that they just would be submissive, that they would allow that work to happen, that it's not because you hate them, but, but you delight in them and you want to do something in their life for them. We pray, Lord, for everyone here that you would bless them, God. In Jesus' name, amen.